We exist to see God glorified and churches multiplied by declaring and displaying the gospel. All right, I want to invite Charles Smith to come forward. There's Charles. Um, Charles is going to be preaching the sermon for us today because as most of you are aware, Charles is one of the elder candidates we just introduced a few weeks back to you here at Emmaus. And as part of, uh, as part of the candidacy process, we want to allow each of these men an opportunity to come and to share with you so you can get to know them a little better, so you can get a, a sense of what it'll be like to be shepherded by them. And so we thought, what better way to do that than to bring them up on the Sunday morning and have them deliver God's word to you. Uh, Kirk Metzger did that a couple weeks ago. Sean Stone uh, preached last week, and today we have the blessing and privilege of hearing from Charles. He's going to preach to you out of 1 Timothy. Uh, but before he does that, before I hand it off to him, I want to uh, just go before the Lord and, and pray for the sermon and pray for you and pray for all of us in the room so that we'll be good hearers of the word this morning. So let's go before the Lord. God, I thank you uh, for Charles, and uh, Lord, I thank you that um, you have put a word on his heart to deliver to us, and that it's a good word because it's a word from you. It's a word from the pages of the scriptures that you sent your Holy Spirit to inspire. Uh, men were carried along by your Holy Spirit as they wrote these words, and so Lord, we pray that Charles would be able to uh, he would be able to expound these words to us, and that as he does, Holy Spirit, that you would come, that you would illuminate our hearts and enlighten us to the beauty and the glory that are in Christ Jesus. Spirit, would you fill Charles's sails with your wind, the breath of your wind today, Lord. And uh, God, we pray for each of us in the room here who are going to be listening. God, let us be good hearers of the word. Let us receive your word in faith. And then, Lord, I pray that we would go from this place ready to be doers of the word and not hearers only. Lord, I pray that uh, you would find good soil in our hearts today as we listen. Convict us, Lord. Uh, lead us to repentance where we need to repent. Lord, I pray that you would comfort us where we need to be comforted. And uh, God, do your good work in us through the scriptures today. Speak now, Lord, for your servants are listening, and we wish to see Jesus, Lord. That's why we're here today. So show him to us. It's in his name we pray. Amen. Amen, and good morning. Good morning. If you have your Bibles with you, turn with me to 1 Timothy chapter 6. 1 Timothy chapter 6. And as you're doing that, let me just mention what a privilege it is uh, to be here. We've been members of this church now for two or three years. Uh, we have sat where you have sat, and this is the first time I've stood where they stand. And you look beautiful. You look great. We're clearly in a theater, but here we are. And we're going to jump into God's Word this morning. And I also want to mention what an unfortunate thing it is to be the one following Kirk and Sean, who did an amazing job. And so I'm a little insecure this morning as we approach the text, but I'm confident God will be with us. We're in 1 Timothy chapter 6, verses 11. 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 11. God's word says, But as for you, O man of God, flee these things. Pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, steadfastness, and gentleness. Fight the good fight of the faith. Take hold the eternal life to which you were called and about which you made the good confession in the presence of many witnesses. I charge you in the presence of God who gives life to all things and of Christ Jesus 
who is the testimony or who made good testimony before Pontius Pilate to keep the commandment unstained and free from reproach until the appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ, to which he will display at the proper time, he who is the blessed and only sovereign, the King of kings, the Lord of lords, whom alone has immortality, who dwells in inapproachable light, whom no one has ever seen or can see. To him be honor and eternal dominion. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we come to you this morning with empty hands as people who need a word from you. We come to you as men and women, husbands and wives, children, brothers and sisters, people that are filled with joy and people who are racked by sorrow and despair. And Father, we confess to you on the front end of this message that we have nothing to bring but our need and our desire to hear you speak. So speak, O Lord. Help us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, if you've been with us over the past many weeks, you know that we've been walking through the book of 1 Timothy. And as we've walked through this book, one of the things that you should have overheard is Timothy's concern for the church of Ephesus. Paul is writing to Timothy, his true son in the faith, not only because he loves Timothy, but even more important and relevant to our conversation this morning, because he loves the people of God. He loves the people of God. And he wrote this letter because he's seeing issues within themselves and within the church that, listen, dishonor God, distort his gospel, and if unchecked, destroy his people. He's seeing issues within themselves and within the church that dishonor God, distort his gospel, and destroy his people. And at times throughout 1 Timothy, it seems like Paul is quibbling over finer points of theology. He uses words like charge and stand and urge. But what we see here time and time again is he reminds us that false teaching and all that flow from it are signs of a hidden cosmic battle for your soul. He underscored this very point in his letter to the Ephesians just a couple years before 1 Timothy saying, Be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. Listen to this. He says, For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, and against the cosmic powers over this present darkness against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly paces. You see, Paul has not lost sight of the big picture. He's read his Jesus storybook Bible. He knows that Satan hates God. He knows that Satan despises his gospel. And he knows that Satan is seeking to destroy his people. And this is uncomfortable for us. We're outside of a cool downtown area where people right now are having Sunday brunch and they're not in here. In fact, as you walk down the sidewalk and they see your Bible, they think it's strange, First Peter says, that you, you engage in these things. But we are people under the Word of God, and as people under the Word of God, we are continually reminded that Satan exists. And your feelings about whether or not Satan exists have little to do whether or not that he is engaging you whether or not he's pursuing you. At this very moment, there's one who knows you better than you know yourself. There's one who seeks to exploit your pride 
your greed and your doubt, and one Peter describes as a lion who's prowling around seeking someone to devour. And although we cannot see this adversary, we can hear him. Listen to that. Although we cannot see our adversary, we can hear him. We hear his voice through teachers who distort God's word and undermine his gospel. We hear his voice through friends who encourage us to behave in ways that dishonor God. In moments of loneliness, we hear his voice questioning God's presence. In moments of fear, maybe you hear his voice questioning God's protection. In moments of need, we hear the voice questioning God's provision. And maybe in moments of anxiety, we hear a voice subtly questioning God's care. And like a lion, these lies rarely announce themselves. Most, listen to this, most are packaged as truth and wisdom. Most are packaged as reasonableness and moderation. And here's a word for 2023, nuance. This is just theologically nuanced. Or simply you've fallen into the trap of this is just something that all Christians struggle with. Maybe like in America, greed or materialism or covetousness or gluttony. Satan traffics in lies and deceptions. He hopes to lull you in this very moment. Right now, if you're thinking, I'm so glad this person is hearing this word, that's the voice of Satan. He hopes to lull you in this very moment into a false sense of security and sanctification. In his classic, The Screwtape Letter, C.S. Lewis imagines two young demons working to secretly corrupt and commit a young Christian to hell. They worked around the clock to undermine the Christian's faith and pursuit of godliness. And the secret to their strategy, if you've read the book, was to go unnoticed. They wanted to be beneath the radar. No activity that would blow their cover, no sudden movements that jostle believers out of their slumber. The goal was a slow, uneventful, maybe even pleasant stroll to hell. The safest road to hell, Lewis writes, is the gradual one. The gentle slope, soft underfoot, without sudden turnings, without milestones, without signposts. Paul knows that Satan hates God. He despises his gospel. And he's quietly prowling around seeking someone to devour. So as we see in our passage this morning, he sends another letter to the church at Ephesus. He's reminding them to guard against the schemes of the devil. And listen, turn with me in 1 Timothy 1, or just listen to this. I've compiled some warnings just from this book, and I want to hear the urgency and how he characterizes the lives of Satan. 1 Timothy 1, 3, and 4 says, I urged you when I was in Macedonia to remain in Ephesus so that you may charge certain persons not to teach any different doctrine, nor to devote themselves to myths and endless genealogies, which promote speculations rather than stewardship for God that is by faith. 1 Timothy 1, 6 and 7 say certain persons, listen to Paul's care for the church, certain persons by swerving from these, what are these? It's the truth of the gospel, solid doctrine, by swerving from these, have wandered 
away in vain discussions. Have we seen that in our congregation, in every congregation in America? People swerving from the truth and wandering away into vain discussions, desiring to be teachers of the law without understanding either what they say or the things about which they make confident assertions. He continues in 1 Timothy 1.18 to say, I charge and I entrust you, Timothy, my child, in accordance with the prophecies previously made about you, that by them you may wage the good warfare, holding faith and a good conscience. By rejecting these, some have made shipwreck of their faith, among whom are Hymenaeus and Alexander, who have handed over to Satan, that they may learn not to blaspheme. 1 Timothy 4, 1 through 3. Listen to this warning. Listen to this tragic outcome. Now the Spirit expressly says that in later times some will depart from the faith. How? By devoting themselves to deceitful spirits and the teachings of demons through the insincerity, insincerity of liars who are whose consciences are seared. 1 Timothy 6, 3-5, If anyone teaches a different doctrine and does not agree with the sound words of our Lord Jesus Christ and the teaching that accords with godliness, he is puffed up with conceit and understands nothing. He's been blinded. He has an unhealthy craving for controversy and for quarrels about words which produce envy, dissension, slander, evil suspicions, and constant friction among people who are depraved in mind and deprived of the truth. Sean last week so helpfully talked about cravings and how these cravings of Satan are kind of like salt water. My my dad's in the room today. We grew up close to salt water. We scuba dived. We would uh, hunt for lobster, all these sorts of things. And though we were surrounded by water, you wouldn't dare drink the salt water. And we all know why. We know that though it appears to bring life and it appears to satisfy our urges, it actually exaggerates our cravings and leads to death. This is exactly what Paul is saying. So in God's infinite wisdom and in God's immeasurable kindness, he gave us the church of the living God. Churches like Emmaus who are pillars and buttresses of the truth. In God's kindness, he gives us pastors who faithfully shepherd his people. And the reason we're looking at God's word this morning is because he's given it to us as a living and active, sharper than two-edged sword to warn us and safely guide us home. And today's passage is the next step in that journey. First, notice with me in verse 11, if you like sermon titles and it just helps you outline, uh, here's a title for you. Fight the good fight of the faith. Flee sin. Pursue God. Remember who you are. Fight the good fight of the faith. Flee sin. Pursue God and godliness. And remember who you are. Look with me in verse 11. Paul says, But as for you, O man of God, flee these things. So Paul has cautioned Timothy against several things in this letter. This final exhortation is most obviously linked to the section Sean so helpfully taught us last week. Sean showed us that pride and greed are like a staircase. I I think a slippery, slimy staircase. 
that descends into quarrels about words, envy, dissension, slander, evil suspicions, and constant frictions that dishonor God, distort His gospel, and if unaddressed, destroy His people. And so Paul encourages us not merely to avoid them, but to literally run from them. To run from them. I hate to be the preacher that says in the Greek, but in the Greek this word flee is where we get the word fugitive. Fugitive. One of my favorite movies and one of my favorite sections of dispatch are fugitive. What is a fugitive but not someone who is running from the chains of their slavery? That is what Paul's saying in this passage. Paul's literally urging you to run from the chains of your sin like an escaped prisoner. Friends, sometimes I fear that in a desire to be patient and gospel-centered, to not be fundamentalist and legalistic, we are far too complacent, far too patient with our sin. We and I have confessed struggles to friends and small groups over the years, which are often code for an unchallenged pattern of sin. We make excuses for our shortcomings and presume upon God's patience. But over and over we see in Scripture, a sign of authentic conversion is a growing desire, not a perfected desire, a present and growing desire to mortify our sin and flee these things. And so this text warns us that there's a war currently raging in the arena of your thoughts, desires, and actions. Unless you think these are just three random words that Paul's mentioning here, think that each of these things begets the other. Wrong thoughts about God, an errant worldview about God, leads to wrong desires about God and others. Wrong desires, if left unchecked, if isolated and nurtured, they manifest sinful behavior. We see this time and time again. This is why Paul calls this a fight of faith. Our sinful thoughts birth sinful desires, and often these lead to sinful actions. And so Paul, two years earlier, writing to the same group of people, says, stand therefore having fasted on the belt of truth. We, we memorize this, a lot of us, as young children. But Paul says this is not the work of children. This is, this is a serious act of warfare, and a war, by the way, that you cannot see, that Satan is actively trying to convince you doesn't exist. It is not just after your life, but is after your soul. So he says, stand therefore, having fasted on the belt of truth, and having put on the breastplate of righteousness, and as shoes for your feet, having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace, in all circumstances, take up the shield of faith, with which you can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one. and Take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. Why does Emmaus and every faithful church continually open God's Word and ask God, what would you say to us? How does he do that? Because we're at war. And in this war, you and I have certain limitations. You and I sleep. You and I are not omniscient. You and I struggle in infinite ways, in ways that Satan does not. Satan does not sleep. He does not wait. He does not wonder who you are and what you struggle with. He is constantly 
waiting and prowling and seeking to destroy you. So we fight with God's Word. If you struggle with greed and envy, Paul is saying, flee these things by meditating on passages like Hebrews 13.5, which instructs us to be content with what we have. For he has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. If you struggle to believe God is in control, flee these things by meditating on Romans 8.28, remembering that God works what? All things together for those who love him. We are to fight the good fight of faith by fleeing these things. But second, notice that we're to fight the good fight by pursuing God and holiness. It's not enough. By the way, this is our temptation as legalistic people that drift toward lists. We're not merely to not do that thing, but we're to turn and do this thing. And this thing is godliness. Look with me in verse 11. He says, but as for you, O man of God, flee these things. What do you pursue? Pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, steadfastness, and gentleness. Here Paul reminds us that we shouldn't merely flee sin. We should pursue Godliness, and this is a theme that we see all throughout 1 Timothy. Godliness is to be pursued, as we've seen in previous weeks, by men. To be pursued by women, deacons, and elders. Godliness is to be on display in our prayers, in our contentment, in our honor of widows, masters, and even elders, as we discussed a few weeks ago. And here in chapter 6, Paul urges Timothy to pursue godliness. Unlike the false teachers who were prideful, greedy, divisive, envious, and slanderous, Timothy, O man of God, you are to be righteous. You are to be godly. You are to be full of faith and love and steadfastness and gentleness. And before we jump into these, I want to take a sidebar and just talk about something that the Lord's impressed upon my heart this week that would be easy for us to miss I want you to underline the word pursue in your Bible. Everybody say pursue. Paul did not say achieve. Paul did not say become righteous in your actions. Paul did not say achieve godliness fully in your actions. He did not say be the consummate example of faith in the way only Jesus can be. He said we are to pursue these things in between his crucifixion and return as fallen people by faith. We're going to talk about that more in a second. But notice, it is to pursue. This is one of the most common ways Satan preys on God's children. Satan wants you to reach for righteousness rather than receive it freely in Christ. Let me say that again. Satan wants you to be convinced that you can reach for righteousness rather than receive it in Christ. The Scripture reminds us that every Christian, from the new convert in this room to the mature saint, and can we say we need more of those mature saints, that is. So if you're here, we we, we love you. But every one of you is an incomplete work of God. One of my favorite passages of Scripture is Philippians 1.6. Because I struggle, if I can just confess to you, I wake up uh, feeling shame most days. And it's often not a conscious shame. It's just a sense that I need to get it together. And I need to be really productive today. 
And I put my head on the pillow, and I wonder, what did I do today? What didn't I do today? When I sit in my recliner, there's just a low-grade hum of shame. There's so many things that I could be doing. But what Paul says in Philippians 1.6 is, I am sure of this, that he who what? Began. He who began a good work in you will bring it to completion when? Next week? Not unless you go home to see Jesus. He's going to bring it to completion on the day of Lord Jesus. And in the meantime, Paul urges us to pursue these things. And so let's look at what these things are. Notice first that Paul calls Timothy to pursue righteousness and godliness. Here Paul has in view a combination of godly thoughts and desires and actions. Where others have been motivated by impure motives and marked by sinful actions, Timothy is to serve, we see in, I believe it's chapter 1, with a pure heart, a good conscience, and a sincere faith. Paul tells him in chapter 4, he is to be an example in speech, in conduct, in love, in faith, and in purity. Paul also calls Timothy to pursue faith and love. Where others have acted from their insecurity and doubt, Timothy is to lead from a deep well of faith in God. Where others have taken ministry into their own hands, Timothy is to rest in God's promise to provide, protect, empower, and guide. Where others have acted selfishly, Timothy is to seek the highest, greatest good for other people, especially those he has been called to serve. Pursue faith and love, Timothy and Emmaus. And finally, Paul calls Timothy and all believers to a life of steadfastness and gentleness. Though these topics are related, steadfastness relates to a deliberate obedience despite pressures, difficulties, or temptations. Think about what Timothy, as a young man, is going through. He is riding a bull, so to speak. And at any moment it feels like he can fall off and because he feels that and fears that he is tempted to not be stable and steadfast to not be gentle but instead to lash out so Paul calls him to steadfastness where others have acted cowardly Timothy is to act courageously where others have led compulsively Timothy is to act steadily Where others shrink back from a bold gospel proclamation, Timothy, be steadfast. And gentleness, this is my favorite word on the list, gentleness. A controlled, confident, firm strength that offers reassurance to weak or wounded people. Let me say that again. Gentleness is a controlled, confident, firm strength that offers reassurance to weak or wounded people. One of my favorite theologians, John Piper, says that a good elder, and he also says a good husband, should be a velvet-covered brick. What a beautiful image of strength, of integrity in square corners, but also something that when touched, when engaged, when encountered, is soft and tender and welcoming. And this is what he calls Timothy to. Where others have used their strength to serve themselves, as Sean talked about last week, Timothy is to use his strength to serve others. 
Where the words of others have led to fear and shame, the words of Timothy should lead to faith and healing. Where others have lashed out in anger, Timothy is to be slow to speak and quick to forgive. Where others have been rough with God's people, Timothy, Paul says, is to be gentle. This week in my sermon preparation, uh, honestly, I wept in my study this morning over the gentleness and love of God. This passage, if we just naturally read it, feels like a list of things to do and a list of things not to do, but if we really understand it, that's why I nerded out on the front end about spiritual warfare, you see that this is a plead from God through Paul to stand firm and survive. This is what Jesus is calling us to. And one of the ways he's done that is giving us the church, giving us pastors, and calling pastors to be gentle with God's people. Many of you know I have three little girls who I love very much, and I don't think any of them are in here now. Two of them are. They have made themselves known. Two of them are. One day there's a chance, there's a good chance, that, that one or more of these little girls will get married. That's part of what <laughs> made me cry this morning, is just thinking about this and imagining walking down the aisle with these little girls and handing them off to some young man that I hope I love and respect. <laughs> uh, hear, hear that, young ladies. But I can assure you what will be on my mind, apart from trying to remember my words and uh, all my vows and those sorts of things, will be, young man, you better be gentle. You better be gentle. These little girls mean everything to us. We have loved them. We have invested in them. Be gentle. And so God, similarly, he calls shepherds to love his bride. And he says, she means everything to me. Timothy, be be gentle. Be gentle with God's people. Third, we are to fight the good fight of faith by remembering who we are. We are to fight the good faith by remembering who we are. And whose we are. Fight the good fight of faith, Timothy. Flee these things. Pursue these things. How, Paul? So far, this is legalism and religion. But Paul's about to get into Christology and salvation and the risen Savior. So remember who you are. Look with me in verse 11. Paul says, but as for you, O man of God. If you're reading this slowly and you're reading 1 Timothy in a single sitting, you notice there's a weight and focus to these words. Paul's tone and tenor and direction change at this moment. This is where my girls would say, things just got real. Things just got real. And though Paul has spent the past several chapters instructing the broader church and speaking in corporate terms, which are good and right and fitting. One of the things I love about Emmaus is sometimes we take songs and we take the word I out of it and we change it to we. And that's a really good thing. It's a good thing that we see ourselves as a corporate body, as the bride of Christ. 
But there are times when Scripture also puts a finger on somebody's chest and says, what about you? What about you? And this is what we see happening right here. You can almost feel Paul's eyes locked on Timothy. And in the silence, you hear Paul ask, but what about you, young man? Who are you going to be? How are you going to live? And before Timothy can respond like most dad, Paul interjects and says, you are a man of God. You are a man of God. Though despite your feelings, your fears, your doubts, despite the struggles that you feel getting out of my shadow as the Apostle Paul, despite the fact that you're young and there are people with gray hair looking to you and going, what do you know about marriage? How dare you lecture me on raising children? Paul says, let no one despise you for your youth, but be an example in conduct. And here, he says, this is who you are, Timothy. You are a man of God. And we don't have time to talk about this, but this is a, this is a technical term. If Andrew King were up here, he would spend a lot of time on this. And he would say, throughout the Old Testament, there are certain men, men like David and Moses and Ezekiel, who the Spirit of God said, this is a man of God. And Timothy would have heard that. And as I imagine Timothy reading these words, maybe by candlelight, I see Timothy breaking down as it hits him what Paul is saying. Paul, not some random guy. Paul, the apostle. Paul, not someone that doesn't know Timothy, but his true father in the faith, which is how this letter opens. And it says, hey, you... Let me tell you who you are. You are a man of God. One of the things I notice in this passage, and I love about this passage and want to, to remind us of and want us to notice, is that Paul doesn't motivate others like we're tempted to, and frankly, like I'm tempted to. Paul doesn't use the fear of failure to goad Timothy on to godliness. Paul doesn't use the weight of shame. You know, other disciples of mine don't struggle with this. You know, if you would just get it together, this church would be growing. Maybe the pressure of performance. No, Paul knows, inspired by God, he knows who we are often determines what we do. Let me say that again. Who you are and who you understand yourself to be. Because oftentimes, who we are in Christ has been set and it is seated at the right hand of the Father, unmovable. But your understanding of that reality has everything to do with your sanctification. Everything. So Paul knows who we are, determines what we do, and here, as only a father can, he puts his finger on Timothy's chest and reminds him he's a man of God. Maybe Timothy's struggling. Maybe he's experiencing periods of doubt and despair. Perhaps he's tempted to quit or to sin against those who are undermining the unity of the church rather than gently shepherding them. But whatever Timothy is struggling with, Paul wants to remind him that he's a man of God. So Paul bestows on him the blessing of identity, connecting him to a long line of other men of God like Moses and Samuel and Elijah and David. And if that wasn't enough, continue reading. Paul continues to reinforce his identity in verse 12 by affirming his call, by referencing his conversion, and by reminding him of the many people like you 
who witnessed and affirmed his calling. There's a chance in a few weeks that there'll be three elders that stand before you and if approved, confess to be men of God, fallen men of God, but men pursuing God that want to, to serve you, to want to be faithful, to want to love you well, to be steadfast, and to be gentle. And you, like the people in Timothy's life, will be testaments to that confession, testaments to that call, and testaments to that identity. And Paul reminds him of this. I don't know all of you, but I know enough to know there are people limping along in this room. Maybe you're struggling through a long season of sin and can't find your way out. Satan's lies have found their target, and you lack the faith to flee sin and pursue godliness, and you've just forgotten who you are and whose you are. And if that is you... I want to close our time together reminding you of who you are based on God's word. If, if you have put your faith in Jesus, you, son or daughter, are a child of God. If you have put your faith in Jesus, your name is written in the book of life and was so before the foundations of the world, and that book is sealed. You are carefully knit in your mother's womb, and God has numbered your days. God has given you a spirit to guide, comfort, and remind you of your identity as a son and daughter of God. If you've put your faith in him, he walks with you now. He's given you his spirit and knows your dreams, your fears, and your doubts, the ones that are distracting you at this very moment. He knows all. He has seen you at your best, and he has seen you at your worst. And in a mystery that the angels long to behold, he still loves you. He still loves you. Charles, how can you be so certain, you ask? It doesn't feel that way. It doesn't seem that way. Because if we continue reading in this passage, Paul reminds us that some 2,000 years ago, Jesus stood. Underline that. Some 2,000 years ago, the king of the universe stood where you should have stood. He didn't equivocate. He didn't sharpen or or soften corners of his convictions. He didn't sit down. No, he stood bruised and bleeding before Pontius Pilate and made the good confession. In love, the eternal son stood in your place even unto death. But on the third day, our elder brother Jesus walked out of the tomb, triumphing over sin, Satan, and death, and securing, listen to this, Life and liberty for all who put their faith in him. And at this very moment, at this very moment, he sits. He's not standing. He's not pacing. He's not wondering how you're going to live your life and what you're going to do and what your decisions you're going to make. No, he's, he is seated because it is finished. And as he sits and watches his children and his church, he is praying 
and interceding. Even when you don't have the words and you only have groans and tears, he speaks a word on your behalf. This is who we follow. This is our king. And in the meantime, as he intercedes for us, he calls us to fight the good fight of the faith, fleeing Satan, pursuing God, and remembering whose we are. Will you pray with me? Father, we thank you for your steady love, for your patience, for your grace, for your church, a pillar and buttress of truth, for your pastors, defenders of the flock, for your word, a sword that will pierce our rough and calloused doubt. And Father, we ask now as we've engaged your word that we would feast upon it, that we would internalize it, that we would be emboldened by it, that we would see you sweeter and better than anything the world has to offer. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Every week we invite those who have put their faith in Christ to this table. As we eat this bread and drink this juice, we're reminded that we are a people who have been purchased not by our good deeds, but by the body and blood of Christ. And it's from that spirit that we are compelled on the godliness. If that is not yet your story, we invite you to stay in your seat and consider Christ's love for you. He stands ready and willing to receive you. Church, come and eat. Thank you for listening to audio from Amaze KC, located in Kansas City. For more information about Amaze KC, please visit us online at www.amazekc.com.